Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Truth Serum wants to thank Hartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Hartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Hartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Hartwood House where addiction meets compassion and recovery. Will global warming and climate change significantly change the way we live in our lifetime? Should you buy an electric vehicle now or stick with your gas-powered vehicle? Are fires and hurricanes increasing or decreasing in the U.S.? Join Spencer as he interviews noted expert Greg Whitestone to get answers to these and other questions. But first, our legal segment. Red alert to any lender imposing default interest on real estate loans in the state of California. The California Court of Appeals, 5th District, held that charging default interest on non-matured loans can now be challenged in both consumer and non-consumer cases as an unlawful penalty. This was the holding in the case of Hanchara versus FJM Private Mortgage Fund, which can be found at 83 Cal F 5th 893. This case should be of immediate concern to any lender who imposes default interest on real estate loans in California. Take action now to avoid lawsuits. Taking a look at the uh, retail, residential, and commercial real estate market in California, the pandemic and subsequent emergence from lockdowns radically changed the demand and pricing for retail, industrial, and residential rentals. The Wall Street Journal reported in October of this year that retail real estate's enjoying one of its biggest revivals in years. Brick and mortar store owners are emerging from the pandemic with surprising strength and they're posting some of their best numbers in years and they're plotting expansion as more Americans venture out to buy stuff again. U.S. retail vacancy fell to 6.1% in the second quarter, the lowest level in the last 15 years while asking rents for U.S. shopping centers in the quarter were 16% higher than five years ago. This according to real estate services firm Cushman and Wakefield. But the other side of the coin is that industrial small businesses are getting squeezed out as there's an increased push for warehouse space. A warehouse crush across the U.S. is squeezing out smaller companies as bigger retails fill industrial storage sites with growing stockpiles of inventory, again reported by the Wall Street Journal in October. And finally, residential real estate market's strong, but it's seeing a marked increase in evictions. In the initial stages of the pandemic, rent increases slowed relative to their recent trends, but by the mid-2021, an increase in the demand for space, a reduced average household size, and supply chain disruptions began to drive up the prices of all housing at historic rates, and this is according to the New York Fed's Liberty Economics blog. However, not surprisingly, evictions are also increasing across the nation as inflation increases and eviction moratoriums expire. Evictionlab.org keeps a running tally of court filings in six states and 31 cities every month. 
And the state's coverage show that the normal mean for eviction filings that was in place just before the pandemic in January of 2020 is now compared with the new eviction case rates and that evictions are escalating in most cities and they're reaching or exceeding the number of cases that were filed before the pandemic started in 2020. If you mix in rising interest rates and the decreasing ability of buyers to qualify for home ownership, it's likely there'll be a further surge in both rental rates and even more evictions. Stay tuned as investors, politicians, and homeowners struggle to navigate these increasingly turbulent times with the hope that the Fed can tame inflation without tanking the economy. Threats to the planet from climate change, the rush to implement green technology, and the economic benefit or detriment from buying an electronic vehicle versus buying a fossil fuel-powered vehicle are now front and center in your life. Some think that the rush to green has to occur now. Save the planet, whatever it takes. Others question the need to act so quickly, and they urge moderation and a measured transition to green while using fossil fuels as a bridge. Many just want to know if it's worthwhile to buy an EV, an electronic vehicle. I sure do. I sought to find out answers to these questions and more, and I was surprised to find out that there's a third view of the rush to go green. That view is that the planet's warming, but that it's a good thing, and that the push to go green may be driven by politics and censorship as much as science, and that electronic vehicles may not even be around in 50 years. Join me as I interview geologist and noted expert Greg Whitestone of the CO2 Coalition. Climate science denier or responsible scientist? You decide. Whether you agree with Greg or not, you'll find he's got a lot of facts to back up his claims and you'll want to hear what he has to say. All right, Greg Wrightstone. You're the executive director of CO2 Coalition based in Arlington, Virginia. The CO2 Coalition is comprised of more than 100 scientists, engineers, and energy experts who focus on climate change and related fields. You obtained your master's in science from West Virginia University. You're a geologist, an expert reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the author of a best-selling book called Inconvenient Facts. You're also the co-author of the first comprehensive peer-reviewed paper on the Marcellus Shale, which is the largest natural gas accumulation in the world. Greg, welcome to Truth Serum. Well, good to be on with you. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm not sure where you, where you want to get started, but uh, there's so many things going on um, that are so topical right now related to climate change. Let me do this. Let me set the stage a little bit for my listeners, and then you have at it. you anxious to hear what you have to say. All right, so to set the stage on the discussion, really my goal is to discuss the immediate impact and benefit of the push to green tech and the transition from fossil fuel vehicles to electronic vehicles. Let's take a macro view of the issue of climate change, global warming, and the impact of going green. In my estimation, I think the average person in the U.S. and most scientists, they view increasing natural disasters like hurricanes, tsunamis, coastal floodings, and other natural disasters as evidence of man's impact on the environment and that it accelerated global warming and climate change and that it threatens the existence of the planet. However, I think other reputable scientists and climatologists argue that the greatest impact on the environment comes from natural phenomena like the 500-year drought currently in effect in the southwest U.S. and that man's impact on global warming and climate change isn't as impacting as as others argue. So one side argues we've got to push immediately for green tech, and the other side says more gradual transition to green tech using fossil fuels, nuclear energy responsible, uh, responsibly. So give my listeners some background on both sides of the argument, and what are your thoughts? Well, there's also a third uh, school of thought that I subscribe to, is that we don't need a, a, a transition, and we shouldn't do it. Uh, it's economically harmful, and it's not needed. Uh, in fact, the CO2 coalition, if you drive the Pennsylvania Turnpike right now, uh, we have a billboard up there. There's a picture of a woman resting comfortably in bed, and the sign says, sleep well, there is no climate crisis. And so what we'll hear about tonight, for me, there's a recurring theme. And if your viewers gather nothing else tonight, but is our mantra and what we can see 
backed up by the science, the facts, and the data that modest warming that we are seeing, combined with increasing CO2, is leading to Earth's ecosystems that are thriving and prospering, and humanity's benefiting from this combination of modest warming and increased CO2. And we can go through some of these as we go, go through this. Um, and it was my, the reason my book was the result of my personal search for the truth about climate change. As a geologist, I knew that some of what we were being told about climate change was just factually incorrect. I just, it was wrong, 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 and easily disproved. I suspect that other things were wrong. And so this was my personal search for the truth. Uh, led me to go back to the base data. I didn't want to trust anybody. I went back to the base data and looked at that and researched. And I found that time after time, uh, an event after event, and claim after claim, uh, the facts just did not back up these these claims of man-made driven cataclysms. Um, and they, they're, they're so numerous. And I, frankly, as a scientist, it, it angered me. Uh, and I was driven to write this book and actually it was just published, it was published nearly, well, more than five years ago now. Uh, it was back to a number one bestseller during most of those five years time on Amazon. Just last week, it was a number one in two categories on Amazon, which is incredible for a five-year-old book. That just doesn't happen. Um, and so it's my, my goal is to get out the science and the truth about what we're actually seeing. And it's, it's, it's kind of fun and easy, actually, as a scientist to dispel some of these climate hoaxes. And so let's just, let's just summarize what I believe. Uh, we are in a warming trend. It's, but that warming trend that we're in started more than 300 years ago. Um, it was at the, the depths of what was called the Little Ice Age. This Little Ice Age was some of the, it's the coldest that we've seen in the last 10,000 years. And so this 300 years of warming has brought us, thankfully, out of the depths of that cold of the Little Ice Age. And it was horrific. Um, half the population of Iceland perished, a third of the population of the Earth perished during that time. Um, so yes, we're in a warming trend. And just to put it in place, it's warmed about eight-tenths of a degree since 1900. Um, that's not too alarming to me. We might see that same warming amount between noon and 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. every day. Uh, so this warming trend has been going in fits and starts. Um, and we, the first 250 years of that, though, was during a period of low carbon dioxide. Um, so the first 250 years had to have been naturally driven warming. It wasn't due to man's increases of CO2. Uh, but we're being told, well, but that's all changed. Now we're adding a lot of CO2 and it's driving temperature increase. Um, it is true that CO2 has increased from about 280 parts per million to about 420. So it's about 140 part per million increase uh, since the Industrial Revolution. So, yeah, we've increased CO2 and it's a greenhouse gas. So increasing CO2 should have some contribution uh, to this warming that we're seeing. I would argue that it's in the scientists here at the CO2 coalition, the physicists that are some of the tops in the world believe that uh, the warming effect of CO2 is significantly overstated by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and others. Let me stop for one minute. A lot of information to digest. So just to set the stage, get a little bit of interest going for our listeners. Some people will be shocked. They'll say you're a climate denier, uh, a climate change denier. Uh, that this, there's no science to back this up. So the, for the people that challenge you in this, you must I, I know you've done a lot of work, you've done research papers, and I read your amicus brief recently. How do you respond in a nutshell to someone who makes that argument? Well, they claim a 97% consensus. There's a poll that will be released I was privy to later this week, uh, a poll of uh, scientists that work on climate change. And according to them, 45% of those polled don't believe that there's a catastrophic, that they believe there's either none, it might be benign, it might be beneficial. 45% uh, of those scientists, and these are meteorologists, uh, geologists, some of the people in hard science, don't believe that. Now, again, 55% do believe, but we're being told it's a 97% consensus. 
uh, it's cons- considerably different from what what we're being told. And we is there is there an opportunity for legitimate debate and discussion on this? Because it seems to be so volatile uh, uh, a subject to people. Are there places where you can discuss this? Uh, they're few and far between. Uh, we're we're seeing more and more of those opportunities. It used to be we were silenced completely. Uh, we're now getting a platform. We've been we've been silenced because when you hear what we have to say, when you hear the science, it's so compelling. And the compelling story is runs just counter to what you're being told and what the media is telling you. Uh, when people listen to me, they go, their eyes get wide. Virtually every person, I talk to a lot of random people as I travel around the country, almost to a man and woman, people are thirsty for this information and the truth because it's been they've not been provided. When they hear it, they go, their eyes get wide, and they go, I didn't know that. And in fact, just an example, I gave a a 45-minute presentation to the Breakfast Club, the Golden Gate Breakfast Club. These were about 80, very liberal, mostly Democrat people from San Francisco uh, that meet once a month, and they had me there. And all of them, almost to a person, they were asking me, at the end of my presentation, they were asking me questions, "Why why why have we not heard this before? And another woman said, why are they lying to us? And these people have just never heard the truth. The, the fact is that you're being told, you may well believe that fires in the United States are increasing. Fires in the United States, both area burned and number of fires, are about 20% of what they were 90 years ago. We've been a significant decades-long decline since the 1920s and 30s for fire. We have increased slightly the area burned over the last several decades, but again, that has nothing to do with climate change. That's that's a that's a forest management issue. That's a whole nother uh, conversation we have on another day. Certainly uh, in California. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Well, again, that uh, California is really interesting. Uh, we've got a Western wildfire paper we're we're working on right now with some top wildfire experts. Uh, a lot of the problem in the Sierra Nevadas are the Sierra Nevada Conservancy says there are four to five times too many trees per acre than what a healthy forest should have. And that, that that's just a compounding problem with uh, water use and the rest. Um, it always back to the 1980s when they stopped uh, timbering and good forest management practices. And you'll you'll notice the California fires, most of them originate and spread through the through the federally owned properties. The privately owned owned, owned uh, forests are properly managed. And you don't see the number of fires there. Uh, the other, the other problem in California is the rise of, of a thing called cheatgrass, an uh, invasive species. A lot of these fires you see in California, they're primarily grass fires from this cheatgrass uh, that takes over. It's called cheatgrass because it takes over and overwhelms the natural grass grasses. And uh, but again, I don't want to go into we weren't we're not here to talk about fires completely. But but that's just one example. Uh, they're they're talking about. Uh, the sixth great extinction, uh, there was a UN report released that uh, claimed that there'd be one million extinctions over the next several decades. Uh, I researched that, looked at the same data, uh, and they only used one data point per century, and their chart looked alarming. I looked at the same data to find that actually extinctions have been significantly in decline since uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s, completely contrary to what they, they told us then 1 million extinctions would be 25,000 to 30,000 species going extinct per year. You know what it's been over the last 40 years average? Two. Two extinctions per year. Not 200, not 2,000, but yes, they're, they're, they're claiming it'll be 25,000. Um, that UN report should have concluded, you know what? We're doing a really, really, really good job preserving our, our endangered species, and we should be proud of that, and we should treasure it and keep doing what we're doing. Uh, but again, they have these alarmists. They twist the, they twist the science and the statistics. They come up with a, uh, the answer that they want, and then they fit the data and the statistics to that. Good. Let me, let's, before we get to the motive of why that may or may not occur, let me ask another question, which kind of really feeds into uh, to what your uh, view is. Now, as I read an article called 50 Years of Failed Doomsday Echo Apocalyptic Predictions that was written by Mark Perry. Uh, 
The article recounted that experts are predicting, uh, have been predicting climate and environmental disasters since 1960s, and they've been 0 for 41. And he cites such failed predictions like the Ice Age by 2000, which was Newsweek's cover story in 75, uh, and Time Magazine's story in 1974, Al Gore predicting ice-free Arctic by 2013, peak oil in 2000, 2010, and 2020, killer bees destroying mankind, and many, many more. I... My question is, is there a significant chance that mankind faces immediate extinction from global warming if we don't immediately transition to green tech? And if so, what's, what's the time frame? Yeah, that, 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 that's just completely false. There is no time frame. Well, we should, I, one of the things that I just love, my next book, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a whole section on this, is the, the strong relationship between the rise and fall of temperature and the rise and fall of civilizations. As we look back to the first 5,000 years of human history, Look back over that period of time, the first great civilizations that arose. Uh, it was called the Minoan Warm Period, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Babylonians. All of these great civilizations rose up in one of the three previous warming periods. Uh, it, what we see, the consistent thing we see about these other warming periods that were warmer than we are today, is that life benefited, humanity prospered, food was bountiful, life was good during the other warm periods. And it was when it started getting cold that led to crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. We saw that at the end of that period of the Bronze Age, it started getting cold significantly. All of those civilizations collapsed within a period of maybe 100 years. It was called the Late Bronze Age Collapse. And it got cold, and it stayed cold, and it went into the Greek Dark Ages, and it was just a horrible time. And we see that repeated time and time again. Before climate science became politicized, those previous warming periods were called climate optima. And they were called climate optima for a reason, because life was good. And they don't use the word climate optima anymore, do they? You've never heard of that, maybe. But that's what the climate science and the people who looked at paleoclimatology called them. Uh, but again, you can't, you can't, conflate warm with good anymore because it doesn't go it goes against the narrative of this uh, fear unfounded i will say fear of warming that may come uh, Let, let's use that i like i like that analysis so again you're saying we are on a warming trend right so where are we in that are we using the the prior uh, ages that you described are we in the middle of it the what? yeah I, yeah i liked as a geologist i looked at i look at the past as maybe some indication of what we might see in the future. Uh, I think, and just looking at that, uh, I think we may see another perhaps 40 or 50 or maybe 80 years of warming. And I'm okay with that because, again, history tells us this has been really good. We haven't seen any. We're being told, oh, my God, we can't let it get warmer by a degree and a half or two degrees. Uh, or all these, and they're saying bad things are happening today. Show me them. Tell me what they are. If we look at the science, we find that what they're telling us is not so. If all this is going to go bad, shouldn't we see some indication of it today? All right, let me let me play. Let me play. Uh, I hate to say the devil, but the devil's advocate here is. Uh, all right. So every time you see these uh, horrific Cat Five uh, hurricanes, or you'll see flooding or big tsunamis. Uh, again, would they be natural phenomenon, or, or are they indicative of the warming? No, 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 no. What you have to do is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of Hurricane Ian. I, my roof, I have a home is south of floor of Tampa. Uh, we're at, we need our roof replaced. We didn't have any other damage, thankfully. Um, it was a, a high Cat Four when it came on, uh, came ashore. So it was bad. But hurricanes happen. Much, much bigger hurricanes have happened in the past. And what you have to do, again, as a geologist, you put this in the long term perspective. It's bad when you're right there, and I feel badly for the other people and other victims here. Uh, I didn't die. Some did. Uh, but what I did was took a look at land-falling hurricanes. According to NOAA, if you want to look at data going back to 1850, look at land-falling hurricanes. Because according to NOAA, every single hurricane that made landfall around the Gulf of Mexico or the eastern seaboard, we know that it happened. All right? You can't miss it. So they're confident that we know every landfalling hurricanes. We've got very good data. 
and the number of landfalling hurricanes uh, has been declining. It's, it's in decline. And then I took a look at every state uh, along the Gulf Coast and the eastern seaboard. I looked at all those uh, 14 states at landfalling hurricanes. There was only one state, Mississippi, that had an increase in landfalling hurricanes. All the others showed a decline. So it, the, the, the state that hurricanes are increasing in numbers, just not, it, 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 the, the facts don't back it up. Uh, but they blow it up that way. Uh, and it's, it, it's, again, it's, and t- again, tornadoes are definitely the big F3, F4, F5 tornadoes have definitely been in a decline over uh, many decades. Um, so you're saying people use the event to make the point, not that the science supports the theory. Oh, yeah. The one thing, if you, if you look closely when you see a report on hurricanes, uh, one of the things, one of the tricks they use is, well, uh, the number of named hurricanes has increased significantly. And they're right. They have, because they've been naming them earlier. They're naming them when it just starts. Well, of course, the number of, of named hurricanes, if you start naming them earlier and earlier, is going to increase. So so look carefully. They have those little tricks that they play. And so it is true, named hurricanes have increased over the last several decades, but it has nothing to do with climate change. Good. Well, one more question here on uh, going on the, the macro view. Uh, the CO2 Coalition recently filed an amicus brief on October 21st of this year with the District Court of Appeals, District of Columbia. And I, I, I read through that. And, you know, I, I will say it's above my pay grade, but it's extremely interesting. In the brief, the CO2 Coalition and a lot of other noted scientists challenged the findings and the policies of the EPA and the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I think I'd synthesize by saying you can test their findings and the use of their models that predict catastrophic global warmings unless uh, CO2 is eliminated from, uh, from the, uh, the, the atmosphere. And you contend that the, the models and the findings are based in large parts on political considerations and censorship and not science. So give my listeners some examples of how you believe the facts are being or data are being manipulated. Well, if you look at the models, for example, we know that they overpredict warming. Um, they're they're estimating that warming it's called a, a climate sensitivity for how much warming will you get for a doubling of co2 so we're let's say we're at 400 now how much warming can we expect when it gets to 800 we've doubled it from 400 to 800 um, these models use 4.5 degrees in some cases three to four and a half degrees of warming for each doubling well uh, our scientists here at the CO2 Coalition and others, Dr. Will Happer, Dr. Richard Lindzen, uh, they believe that that warming effect of additional doubling of CO2 is more is less than one degree. And so what that does is get you to a little bit warmer area, but nothing catastrophic. So they're they're building and making all these predictions based on on what we know to be failed climate models, and, and there are about 100 of them. Of the 100, there's only there are only two that actually predicted warming very well. Those are the Russian models. Uh, and so my question for them would be, why not just use the two that actually predicted warming correctly? Why use all the ones that are warm? And what they do is they just average all these models together, the two that are right, or the, that have predicted in the past correctly, and then the other 98 that aren't. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, for example, if you're a meteorologist and you've got a, a, a weather model, uh, if you've got five to choose from and you've one that you know that you trusted and it's it's been reliable for the last 30 years, I would use that one and not the three or four models that have been wrong for 40 years. Uh, and so that's just one example of the models over predicting warming. We talked about uh, the fallacious in, information. We just talked about hurricanes about uh, again we talked about fires uh, uh the un reports on on extinctions uh, we go on and on and on about this there uh, uh, the UN, i'm a i'm a an expert reviewer for the intergovernmental panel on climate change so i was part of that process and what they have there's good science at the ipcc uh, but what most the only people the only thing that people reference is what's called the summary for policymakers and that's that's where they gather all this information down. And it's not the scientists that write it. They're politicians and representatives of government. And what they're, there are two rules. And if you read the brief, you'll, you'll learn that there are two rules in the IPCC 
that all the science must conform to the summary for policymakers that are written by government officials, not scientists. Uh, so there's a lot wrong uh, in, in what they do. And, you know, it's our, our mission here at the CO2 Coalition uh, to provide uh, an, an avenue for, for good, uh, clean science to take place and to, to expose some of the uh, misinterpretations we've got out there. Yeah, what stri- I appreciate that. What strikes me the most that when I'm hearing this is that there's, this should be what we're talking about should be nationally uh, televised with somebody on the other side so people can hear the, the facts and make up their mind. They, they cannot. They must shut me and the other scientists like me and the scientists of the CO2 Coalition because if people hear this, they'll go, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, so that what their, their stance is, the science is settled and we can't have these people like me providing the information that's not, that's not approved by the state. Uh, it's That's not how science works. Science doesn't work by consensus, it, it, and consensus is not science, yet they're trying to, to ram that down the Americans' uh, throats and, and have them believe that. And that's why, uh, for example, I was permanently banned on LinkedIn uh, not too long ago. Uh, in fact, my last uh, post on LinkedIn, I said, I think I'm about to be banned and deplatformed by LinkedIn. They removed that post, called it false and misleading, and then banned and deplatformed me. Now, that's funny. I mean, I I had to laugh. You can't make this stuff up. And I just shook my head. So I'm I'm permanently banned from LinkedIn because I posted long-term geologic data, and particularly long-term data about uh, uh, carbon dioxide levels throughout Earth's history that show that we don't have too much CO2, we don't have enough, and that we're actually CO2 impoverished compared to much of Earth's history. Amazing. All right, let me, let me switch over a little bit towards a macro issue with you, if you would. Uh, whether the push to get people into electronic vehicles or electric vehicles and solar energy is really energy efficient and benefits the ecology of this planet and the pocketbook of the average citizen. So ask a couple of questions, tell me what you think. I. Uh, can you tell me generally about how much of U.S. energy uh, currently comes from green energy like wind and solar versus oil and gas and nuclear? Yeah, well, renewables combined are about 12% of energy. And about half of that, maybe a little bit less, is, is actually hydroelectric. So bear in mind, I don't think we're going to see any more hydroelectric. That, that requires building of dams, of big dams. And, and creation of hydroelectricity from, from the dams. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to have see the Grand Canyon dammed at any time soon. Uh, but uh, So there's about 12%. Uh, so, but what's interesting, I just read an article. Uh, Wood McKenzie had a report that just came out. Uh, they, they said that we've spent, uh, or actually in 2021 when it ended, uh, we had... 81% of all of our electricity uh, was from fossil fuels. And they said 10 years ago, it was 82%. In that time, according to Ward McKenzie, we spent $3.8 trillion on renewables. So we spent $3.8 trillion, that's worldwide, globally, on renewables. And what have we got? We were at 82% 10 years ago. We're at 81% fossil fuels today. Um, you don't have to be an economist to know that's probably not a very good investment. And and we also see uh, a report just came out that Yale, published by Yale, that uh, predicts that a complete net zero economy of the United States, as the United States would be cost four and a half trillion dollars. Uh, that, that's a lot of money. And that includes batteries. And again, you're going to have to to get there. You're going to have to pave over hundreds of thousands of square miles of for for solar panels. You're going to have to cut down many, 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 many tens or hundreds of thousands of forests to put up wind turbines. Okay, this is. Let, let me transition. This is great. Next question because it goes right into that. So I, I read uh, an article by Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute. In 2020, he said that a single electric car battery weighing 1,000 pounds requires the processing of over 500,000 pounds of materials. And then he said that oil, 
natural gas, and coal are needed to produce the concrete, steel, plastics, and purified minerals used to build these, quote, green machines, so that the energy equivalent of 100 barrels of oil is used in the process to fabricate a single battery that can store the equivalent of one barrel of oil. Is that accurate or close to accurate? Well, he is the expert. Mark is a member of the CO2 coalition. So actually, I have used that as a reference. So I'm not one. I'm not going to question Mark. He does great work. Uh, I've heard similar numbers. So, um, uh, you know, I, I stick to my wheelhouse, which is pr primarily the science. And Mark does takes a, a great lead. But again, these are the type of people we have here at the CO2 coalition that, that, that dive deep into this and are, are some of the experts of, of various aspects about climate change and energy. But is it possible that you'd have that gross a disparity between the, what, what you need to get the equivalent of a barrel of oil by putting by having to create all the materials and, min and getting well, the minerals? Well, think about this. Because? If you, we need they're called critical minerals, and, and it's rare earths like neodymium and molybdenum, and, and there's but the things you can't pronounce, and those are the rare earths, and they're actually not rare, but they're rarely found in large enough concentrations. Uh, to make it worthwhile to mine. Uh, and then you've got the critical minerals like cobalt and lithium that need to be mined. Uh, both of those require uh, large open pit excavations that are environmentally uh, bad, very bad. And that's why they're main, many of these are, are based in third world, world countries, uh, China and other places, Mongolia, uh, where there's very little in the way of, of environmental uh, regulations. Well, let's say just hypothetically, because there's a dramatic push now, even investing, where they're requiring, you know, even gold miners who can show that they're environmentally sensitive and have better technologies and can do this in a less uh, intrusive way. I mean, if, if that technology is improved upon or perfected to some degree, will, will that change the balance so that it's worthwhile doing that? Or is there still too great a disparity? I'm not, as a geologist, it's hard to see how this 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 can happen without it being environmentally harmful i mean just all the open pit mines and things like rare earths you're gonna have to mine you know for every pound of of the neodymium or whatever the rare earth is that you're looking for you're probably going to have to have i don't know 50 100 150 200 pounds of of what we call the overburden or the the, the country rock to get that that one pound out and there's just that's got to go somewhere. And they have these uh, uh, large pits, uh, lakes that they're they're dumping into that are just again environmental nightmares. Uh, one last uh, question in this vein is: e even if it costs more, say significantly more, to produce an electric car, and it, but everybody's driving them, will the benefit to the climate balance that out at all as far as the economics? Well, no. No and no, because it's, again, I, if you look on the back of my SUV, I got a bumper sticker that says, I heart CO2. Uh, we, we give out buttons that we, we, we love CO2, and that's our motto here. We love CO2, and so should you. So if we're, if we're trying to restrain production of CO2, you're actually restraining uh, and, and cutting plant growth, because plants benefit from more co2 they just do and we're seeing the a greening of the earth it's astounding we're breaking crop growth records year after year uh from the the high latitude areas to the to the equator uh, we just did a uh, our research associate vj jayaraj in india writes a lot about uh, indian agriculture and, and uh, the developing countries the energy poverty there just a hot country like India's crops are breaking records year after year. And it's, it's the combination of modest warming, which leads to longer growing seasons. And that's turbocharged with this CO2 fertilization effect. Uh, and as we add more and more CO2 to the atmosphere, we'll, we'll experience more and more plant growth. We see that that's why uh, greenhouse operators are pumping CO2 into their, into their greenhouses. Because if you have an enclosed greenhouse, what happens is you either have to have a lot of circulation of fresh air coming in or pump CO2, or your CO2 levels drop precipitously down to where it really inhibits plant growth. Because all those plants are sucking the CO2 out of that enclosed greenhouse. Um, you can see that I took a, 
a CO2 meter that I've got out up here behind me uh, on a cornfield. And it was, as you walk into the cornfield on a, on a calm day, you can see the CO2 levels just dropping. And, and that's, again, because the corn is sucking that CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that's why for crop growth records and, and corn, I, as I learned recently, the best days are mildly breezy, sunny days because the breeze actually mixes up the CO2 from outside of the cornfield into that. And it, it creates prosperous growing conditions for the corn and other, other crops. Good. Very good. All right. Coming into a, a landing, could you give, and again, I know you're not an economist, but we're on the subject. Can you give a rough comparison uh, of the economic benefit to the average consumer who buys a, uh, an electronic vehicle versus a fossil fuel vehicle? It looks like a yearly cost for an electric vehicle is about $10,400 a year compared to uh, an internal combustion engine of $8,700 a year. A lot of that cost is because the EVs are so much more expensive. Uh, the EVs average $60,000 uh, per vehicle. And so that, that cost is calculated into that number, where that's almost $20,000 more than a gasoline-fired vehicle. Um, and so it's the cost comparison. If you looked at the overall cost of purchase plus the cost, uh, and, and right now electricity is you're going to find you may not see it yet but in a few months or another month or two you will uh, that your electricity costs are going up and up and up and particularly for new englanders uh we see that uh, they're particularly uh, vulnerable their, their their prices will probably quintuple over the next month or two because of their uh these idiotic policies of, of banning natural gas pipelines um so they're having to import natural gas and liquefied natural gas from Algeria and Saudi Arabia and other places that are much more expensive than American natural gas. Is nuclear uh, a not only a more efficient energy, but is it, is it potentially, is it potential to use new technologies to make it safer? Yeah, well, it, it is actually very safe. And we've had a couple highly publicized incidents with some old technology uh, the new technology is probably small modular reactors, SMRs. Uh, that'll that that's the that's the next thing. You say is it more efficient? Uh, if you look at it from fuel, yes, because a little bit tiny bit of nuclear fuel fuel goes a long way. Uh, but in terms of cost benefit, uh, these nuclear in the United States is very expensive to build a nuclear reactor because of the the over redundancy of, of safeguards uh, in France, they can build them a lot cheaper. Uh, and uh, but again, the, the future there. I like nuclear, but I, I can't imagine that it, it plays a big role over the next thirty years or several decades. How about one more glimpse in the future? Hydrogen powered vehicles? Yes or no? Absolutely, positively stupid idea. It takes more energy to create hydrogen than it does when you use it to burn things. So what they're proposing is using solar power to create hydrogen, which then can be burnt. But you're using, again, you're using more energy to create it than what it is, than the energy that it produces. It's, uh, I guess if you want to feel good, that's a really good way to go about it. Buy an electric vehicle, um, but uh, these are feel-good attempts uh, to solve a non-existent problem. Good. I've enjoyed talking to you. Uh, give my listeners the view 10 years from now. Is everybody going to be driving electric vehicles, uh, hydrogen power vehicles, or are we going to be walking around? No, we're going to be driving internal combustion en engines and loving it. I think the electrical vehicle uh, market, it can come crashing down with one big event. And that one big event will be an electric vehicle catching fire under an apartment building or business. We know that these things combust spontaneously, not very often, but they do. And they're very, very almost impossible to put out. And so what happens when you're two floors down under a building uh, that's occupied and you're, this electric vehicle catches fire? The, the fire company can't come. That's a nightmare scenario. It hasn't yet. It has happened in Germany. They banned Bavaria's banned 
electric vehicles in parking garages. Um, it has not happened. It's, it, again, it's a nightmare scenario. But we see these things combust spontaneously. Uh, we're seeing that in the Gulf Coast or uh, Florida after Hurricane Ian now, that these the, the salt water uh, corroded the lithium-ion batteries. And they've, they've had quite a number of these electric vehicles catch fire because of the corro corroded batteries. Um, and, I mean, it, it, that's... These are there are things about electric electric vehicles that that are just not good. Now, let me ask you: If you were living at, uh, near my home, south of Tampa, um, and you had uh, a Tesla that was fully charged, and you had a 2010 Dodge car with a full tank of gas, which would you drive to escape the storm? I the the hurricane because you're going to be stuck on traffic the tesla's going to go faster though right not in traffic not in traffic you won't no 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 you don't know how how slow traffic when people are all when you got three million people heading out, off out of the same area no you're doing about eight miles an hour whether you're on a tesla or a golf cart and uh there's not much you can do about it and the other thing too about electric vehicles they don't uh, their performance is degraded significantly in both very hot weather and very cold weather, and 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 you know you know that from just your knowledge of batteries in cold weather they just don't last as long. So well, one more question. This is fascinating to me. Uh, so uh, using your uh, scenario that you you're, we just have been talking about, I if EV is really not the future and fossil fuels will be, the fossil fuels are finite, right? I mean, even if you frack all the way to the end of the earth, they still run out of them eventually. What's the ultimate end game for well, not, transportation? Not really. Not really. Um, I guess maybe, are you talking 300 years, 400 years from now? Let's say it's 50 years from now. Well, that's not going to happen. And the reason for that is as oil becomes scarcer, it becomes much more expensive. And because it's much more expensive, the oil companies can afford to go after smaller fields. There are a lot of very of smaller fields that are not economic right now, but would be at a lower price. And there's you got the elephant, the giant fields, but then there's lots of all these medium and small oil fields to go after. Uh, and again, let me let's just talk about natural gas. I know something about that. And while I was researching uh, the Marcellus shale, we looked in 2008. We looked at the top 10 conventional gas fields in the world. And those top 10 conventional fields combined did not equal the Marcellus shale in terms of gas in place. All 10 of the largest fields. That gives you an idea how big this thing is. And there's there's another, it's called a mega giant field. I coined that term. There's the lower, deeper one that's a mega giant that's barely been tapped. And there's one above it that I, I wrote about that's uh, a super giant field. And we've got all this gas that's sitting there. Uh, we've got generation after generation of natural gas just in the eastern United States that could be tapped. And so th it's a huge, huge resource um, that, that we're seeing. And new technology uh, has, has shown that we can develop and produce soil places they never thought they could. Great information. Uh, before I give my listeners an opportunity to be able to co connect with you and the CO2 Coalition, is there any place that you could recommend where there's a legitimate, honest debate where you're on one side and someone else is on the other side so people can hear both sides? Well, I just I testified before the Pennsylvania House Energy and Environment Committee uh, just two days ago, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I got called a science denier by the minority chairman. And uh, but he didn't want he didn't want to tangle with me because I have science, facts and data on my side. And uh there, there really isn't. I, I what I'll suggest is that your, uh, your viewers download my smartphone app. It's free. You just search for inconvenient facts, and it's got a lot of the information there to dispel this inf this negative misinformation that we see. That way, for example, you're at, uh, at at Thanksgiving dinner, and your nephew Billy is there, and he goes, "Hey, Uncle Spencer, did you know that polar bears are going extinct?" You can pull out your smartphone app and you go, just a minute, Billy, here's fact number 53. And that's actually the fact number on your on the smartphone app. Here's here's 60 years of polar bar 
population history, Billy. He goes, oh, and it's got everything sourced and referenced. And it's it's a wonderful, wonderful tool to use uh, to fight back. And you learn so much. Great. All right, good. I've, again, I've enjoyed talking to you. This subject's fascinating. Uh, tell my listeners where they can get a hold of you or anybody else you think they might be interested in at the CO2 Institute. Yeah, I'd start with my book, Inconvenient Facts. Again, it's it won't die. It keeps keeps going and going and going. And uh, so Inconvenient Facts at Amazon, or you go to the CO2Coalition.org. We have a wonderful new um, uh, education initiative. We published uh, three new books. Uh, we haven't, They're not available quite yet for the public. Um, it, it's called the, the CO2 Learning Center, our YouTube first four videos. If you go to YouTube, search for CO2 Learning Center for these cool videos. And we have lesson plans that we're creating to go along with that for homeschool students. Great. Anything else you want to say before we uh, end the interview? Sleep well. There is no climate crisis. Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak is a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit, and sometimes you need a lender who understands, and who can get you a loan when you need it most. Iron Oak can help. Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books. Cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with. Pray often and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.